0: We're in Philemon, and we began uh, this series a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night, and uh, we're going to jump right back into some things that we find here. Notice, if you would, in verse number one, the Bible says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother." Now, let me just give just a little bit of background uh, here to this particular book. For those of you that may have missed, uh, two weeks ago on that Wednesday night, as we just kind of began to introduce some things in this particular letter. As we said, uh, on that Wednesday night, this is the shortest of Paul's writings, and and, uh, it's just one one chapter in length. Uh, So there are no chapter divisions. You get one chapter, and it really is just a letter, and most people don't write Uh, extremely long letters. And so here Paul is writing to a man by the name of Philemon. And uh, Philemon uh, is a believer, uh, and he also happened to be, at a certain point in time, uh, a man who had uh, servants under him, slaves we might refer to them as. And at a certain point, he had one of those servants or one of those slaves, a man by the name of Onesimus, who uh, who stole some of Philemon's wealth and then and then ran away from uh, his place of service and um, and you can imagine uh, for Philemon that that was a difficult day. Uh, not only had uh, he had things that were taken from him of his own wealth, things that he had worked hard to accumulate, uh, but now he is down in his in his labor force and and uh, and this uh, servant by the name of Onesimus. The Bible say, seems to indicate. Uh, that he made uh, a journey, a long journey, to the city of Rome. Why would he go to a place like Rome? Well, we don't know for sure, but we're assuming that as a runaway slave, uh, he was trying to uh, blend in with the crowd. He was trying to go to a place where he would not be recognized, he would not be known. And uh you know it makes sense to go to a place where there's lots of people coming and going and you just sort of are just one number in the midst of thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands and so he ends up in a place called Rome. But what he does not realize is that God is at work in all of these circumstances and all of these situations. And I'm just constantly reminded that God uh is uh, is always working behind the scenes to accomplish his will. And uh, to perform his plan for our lives. And at a certain point, we don't exactly know how or when or what the circumstances were surrounding uh, Philemon, excuse me, Onesimus and Paul meeting up. Uh, Brother Caleb, if we're having problems with this, we can just go to the the pulpit mic and I'll do my best to uh, stay here at at this place, all right? But uh, at a certain point that Paul and Onesimus make a connection. And at this point in time, Paul is a prisoner of Rome. Uh, interestingly enough as he begins this letter in verse number one he introduces himself not as a prisoner of Rome but as a prisoner of Jesus Christ and uh, his his uh, obviously his bondage to Rome uh, was linked to his uh, bondage as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ in other words Paul was not a prisoner of Rome because he had committed some terrible awful crime Uh, But rather, he was a prisoner of Rome because of his faithfulness to preach the gospel, and uh, and so whether maybe Onesimus ends up in prison himself, or at some point or another, again we don't know all the circumstances. But the two of these men meet, and of course, Paul's chief order of business is always the gospel. Uh, That was his life. That was his passion. It was the thing that he uh, cared about the most, and. And so the, the indication, of course, is that because of the, the connection that was made between these two, Onesimus trusts Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And what a glorious day that must have been uh, for this man uh, who uh, had been a runaway slave, who uh, really probably had not had a whole lot of good things happen in his life. And yet now all of a sudden he is a child of the king. Uh, he is a born-again believer He is a possessor of eternal life. And yet, and yet we discover that perhaps his joy, at least momentarily, was short-lived. You say, well, why would it be short-lived? Well, the indication is that Paul says to Onesimus as he learns his story, Paul says to him, you know, now as a believer in Christ, you probably should go back and you probably should make some things right that you have done previously. And what had Onesimus done wrong previously? Well, he had stolen from Philemon, and he had run away as a servant or as a slave, uh, which was not lawful for him to do. And then you think to yourself, the story becomes even more incredible, not just that Paul and Onesimus meet one another, that Onesimus comes to know Christ as his Savior, but the story is also fascinating when you think to yourself that Paul and Philemon happen to know one another. That's pretty incredible when you think about how God weaves the details of all of these things together. Most Bible scholars believe that Paul was responsible for the fact that Philemon was a believer. That likely Paul had led Philemon to Christ. As you read this letter, there seems to be a deep connection. And there seems to be some indication that uh, that Paul, humanly speaking, might have been responsible uh, for sharing the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with this man by the name of Philemon. And so, again, we understand there are no coincidences in life. There are no uh, surprises as it relates to God and his work. And as we think about the overview of this story, we think, what are the chances that all of these things could happen and that Paul would know this man by the name of Philemon, that he would meet this man by the name of Onesimus who is running away, trying to remain undercover, that it would result in, Ph- in Onesimus' salvation. And then at a certain point, it would result in Onesimus returning to Philemon uh, to make things right uh, with him as a believer in Christ. And so, as we talked on that first Wednesday night, we talked about Philemon's faithfulness. As Paul is writing this letter, he sends Onesimus back. He says, you need to make this right, but he says, I'm not going to send you back empty-handed he sends him back with this letter, and this letter, of course, indicates or reveals uh, some things that Paul is going to write, and that will be the subject of this series. Now, notice that Paul refers to Philemon with two glowing commendations, uh, two uh, really positive references as he begins this letter that reveal philemon's faithfulness number one he refers to him as dearly beloved in verse number one paul a prisoner of jesus christ and timothy our brother unto philemon our dearly beloved and then he refers to him as our fellow laborer our dearly beloved and our fellow laborer and um, we talked just a little bit on that wednesday night a couple of weeks ago about just the idea of having a love for your fellow believer, uh, those that know Christ as their personal savior. You know, the church is more than just a collection of individuals. Uh, The church is a family. Uh, We are a group of people that God has brought together here in this place for the purpose of carrying out the great commission. And, And, you know, when you think about family, you think about people that you love. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my parents and my brothers and their families and I love my wife's family and, and I love my extended family on, uh, on all sides. And I'm thankful for the folks that God has brought into my life. But I also want you to know that when I think about you and I think about the members of the Cleveland Baptist Church, the folks that Come here on a regular basis. My heart is filled with love that I feel like, in some respects, I could say uh, to you what Paul said to Philemon. I could refer to you as my dearly beloved, and I trust that as you look around this place tonight, or as you come together with us on Sunday, that you're not just seeing folks and saying hello to folks and just saying, "Yeah, they're you know they're just people that happen to tend you." No, these are these are dearly beloved to us. The Bible talks about the fact that when one of us uh, is rejoicing, then we all rejoice. And when one of us is filled with sorrow, then we weep alongside of them. Why? Because of our love for one another. Because we're dearly beloved. And so as we think about this, I leave you with this question. Do you have a genuine love, a heartfelt love for fellow believers? Jesus said this in John 13, 35, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. You know, I I I fear as though we have uh, determined discipleship by things other than what the Bible determines discipleship. Some would say, well, you know, folks will know that you're disciples by how many times you go to church a week. Folks will know that you're disciples by how you dress when you go to church. Uh, folks will know that you're a disciple by the fact that you don't swear or that you don't laugh at inappropriate jokes or inappropriate humor uh, Folks will recognize that you're a disciple determined It'll be determined by the haircut that you have or it'll be determined by uh, this thing or that thing no, That's not what jesus said Jesus said that folks will know that you're my disciples as they observe and are able to see your love for one another Just recently, we had a member, a family in our church that lost their home due to a house fire. Woke up one night in the middle of the night and could smell the smoke and barely, barely made it out of the house, as the story was told to me. When we learned of that as a church, we met with that couple. I did as the very next morning, we prayed together in my office. When they came into my office, you could still smell the smoke on them. I told them I said you know i don't know exactly what we're going to be able to do, but we want to be a help to you. We took another's offering uh, last sunday night and and uh, and my soul God's people gave over and above what I think any of us expected. You know what that is that's love uh, that's love that folks have for one another and and uh, and that's important that's key and then he calls him a fellow laborer. Uh, can I just say that you know there's reason to believe that Philemon was a minister. The Bible talks about the church that was in his house. And I just have to tell you that ministers are, as we said on, on that Wednesday night, ministers are not, are not kings. We're not CEOs. I, I'm, not a, I, I'm not someone who's, uh, who's, who's uh, you know some, some great leader. No, no ministers are ministers. Uh, they're servants. Jesus Christ set the standard here, didn't he? Listen to what, listen to what uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus said. Jesus said, listen, you, you'll, you look at the Gentiles and they exercise dominion and authority over others. When he said this, he said, listen, that's not the way it is in my kingdom. He said, in my kingdom you're known by your service. He said, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And so Paul refers to Philemon not as some you know, great king or great leader, But he refers to him as a fellow laborer. He refers to him as a servant. I want to ask the question, are you a fellow laborer here in this work? Not just do you love the dearly beloved here in this church, but are you a fellow laborer? What are are you doing? It's thrilled my heart this week to watch many of our church members coming together with involvement in the Smite campaign. It's just a beautiful thing to see. A bus is running all over the city and young people knocking on doors and older folks alike and even those that are here perhaps serving meals and preparing meals and those that are cleaning up and some of you who will be involved on Saturday with follow-up visitation and those of you who will minister to folks in the days and weeks to come perhaps through a bus route or through a Sunday school class or in some other way and you know what that is? It's fellow laboring. We're serving together. We're laboring together, and so we see that uh, Philemon's faithfulness. But I want you to notice. Secondly, as we can, can consider this text tonight, I want you to notice Philemon's family in verse number two. Philemon's family. The Bible says in verse number two that Paul continues writing. He says, "And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house." Now, not only does Paul Commend in the beginning of this letter, Philemon for his faithfulness, but he also commends Philemon's family for their faithfulness. He addresses what most Bible scholars believe is Philemon's wife, a woman by the name of Aphia, and then his son, uh, uh, what we believe to be a man by the name of Archippus. He refers to Apia as our beloved. There's that term again. And to Archippus as our fellow soldier. Now, you should not only, you should not only pray, for your pastor and your minister. But can I also remind you that you should also pray for that individual's wife and children as well. I know many of you do and I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful for the love that my family receives from the members of this church. Periodically we'll receive a note or a card in the mail. No special occasion. It's not a birthday or an anniversary or anything, not even a holiday. And It'll just simply say something like this. We just want you to know that we love you and that we appreciate you and that we're praying for you. Many times it'll be addressed not just to me, but to my wife and to my children as well. There's some members of this church that do their best to try to remember my kids' birthdays. And they'll do something small and be a blessing to them and be a help to them. That means a great deal to me. The minister's family uh, is, um, is worthy of your, of your prayers and certainly of your love. The Bible says that uh, the minister has a family and, and, and that that family needs to be in order, as it were. I want you to hold your place in Philemon and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to notice what Paul writes as far as the qualifications for those who will serve as a bishop or a elder or a pastor in a church. He says in verse number four, he says that the pastor needs to be one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? They say, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's a good question. I think that I think it's unfair for us to place an expectation on the pastor's family that we wouldn't necessarily place on any other family. The truth of the matter is, every Christian home ought to be a home that is well-ordered. Every Christian home ought to be a, a home in which mom and dad are leading their children and are exercising authority in their lives. That's so critical and so crucial to that child's growth and development. But I'm thinking to myself, how does this affect my family and my leadership among you? Can I just help you understand that my family and really me are really no different than anybody else in this room? We have our struggles. We have our, we have our issues. There were, there were times when we just returned from our vacation. There were times in which I looked at my wife and said, why did we even take this vacation? <laughs> Children are bickering with one another, warring with one another in the backseat and, you know, and having having their issues. And and uh, and so we're we're a family. We're a home just like any other home. We don't always have it all together. But I but I, I think to myself about this this idea, one that ruleth well his own house. My children aren't perfect. In fact, they're far, far from perfect. But I do believe this. I believe my children love the Lord. And I believe they love this church, and I believe they love God's Word, and they want to please God's Word and be faithful to God's Word. Uh, This week, three of my oldest that are old enough are involved in this might campaign, and they're out with everybody else knocking on doors and trying their best to win souls to Christ and are serving the Lord faithfully and are enjoying their time. I think to myself that if my children were out of order, if my children were unruly, you would be asking the question that really Paul asks in verse number 5, and that would be this, if he doesn't know how to keep his own home together, how in the world is he going to be effective in keeping the church on the right track and maintaining order uh, in, in God's house? And so we certainly understand this qualification. You're in 1 Timothy, go a couple of books further in your Bible to the book of Titus. And we see, uh, we see that repeated once again in Titus chapter number one. Would you look in verse number six? Again, he's talking about the worthiness to be ordained an elder and he says this he says that one must be blameless the husband of one wife having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly and I would just tell you that uh, my children have to have to bear some of this burden some of this responsibility recently we were having a conversation as a family I said to my children we were talking about a particular thing and I just said well I just want you to know that if if one of you were to ever be involved in something like that li- while living in my home, I said there would be a strong possibility that I would, as the pastor of Cleveland Baptist Church, have to tender my resignation. Their eyes got real big. Their mouths opened, you know, the chin hit the floor. They, I suppose they never really thought that their behavior and their lifestyle as children being raised in my home might have some... Uh, m- might have some impact on my role as the leader here and as the pastor here. But I-, I believe that's Bible. The Apostle Paul, again, is writing to Titus, and he said, Listen, he said that the, they, the, the children of the pastor must be faithful, and they cannot be accused of riot or unruly. Almost 23 years ago, I married my wife. stood here on this very platform in August of 2000, and we committed our lives to one another. I knew at that time, I knew that that was a huge, huge decision for both of us. But standing where I stand today, I can tell you that it probably was the most important decision either one of us would make apart from our choosing to place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible seems to be clear that a man, a bishop, a pastor, an elder cannot be someone who is divorced and remarried. It cannot be someone who is with a second wife or a third wife. That that first wife is so very, very important. Oh, there have been some that have read this and said something along the lines of, well, you know, it just means one wife at a time. I don't think that's what it means. I believe it means the husband of one wife, one and only one. If the Lord chooses to, to separate them by way of death and certainly that pastor could remarry but uh but but if that wife that spouse is still living and 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 there's a separation there there's a divorce there it's going to affect the the ability that that man has to be able to lead the church so the family listen the family of a spiritual leader is so very important let me talk to you just briefly about the minister's wife she's identified we believe in the very first chapter of philemon and she's identified as our beloved. Aphia. Now we don't know much about Aphia, but again, Bible scholars believe that this is referring to a, uh, to a female. This is referring to a woman, the way that the name is given and the, uh, the, the names that would have been during that time. And, and to notice that Paul calls her beloved. Now I just want you to know the minister's wife, listen, should have no expectations placed upon her except for biblical expectations. Maybe I ought to say that again. The pastor's wife, the minister's wife should have no expectations placed upon her except they be biblical expectations. They say, What are biblical expectations for the pastor's wife? Can I just help you with something? Biblical expectations for the pastor's wife are the exact same thing as what the biblical expectations would be for any Christian's wife. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we have. We have tried to make the pastor's wife become and do and fulfill some calling that she never really has. Not biblically, at least. You say, what are the expectations for a wife and, and, and for a, a, a lady in the, in the home? Well, in Titus chapter number 2, you're certainly close to that. If you're in Philemon, you just go back a page or two. If you're still in Titus chapter number 1, you just go chapter forward. And we have to, first of all, I ask ourselves the question, okay, what is the woman? Is she, because there's two designations here, is she an aged woman or is she a young woman? Now, if you're asking me that question about my wife, I, uh, I believe she probably is still in the young woman category. And if she were here, I know she would want to hear me say that. And so I'm going to say that. Um, but it is amazing how quickly life goes by. And I don't exactly know when you transition from the young woman category to the aged women. But, but notice what God wants for the aged women. Look at it. Titus chapter number 2 and verse number 3. The aged women likewise that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So the qualifications for the aged women is pretty clear. They're to be Holy. Uh, they're to be um, they're to be honest uh, they're to be they to be sober in their in their habits uh, it seems to be seems to indicate there that perhaps not caught up in some addiction as perhaps maybe the consumption of wine could could lead to and they're to be teachers of good things well who are they to be teaching well the next, very next verse tells us that verse number four that they may teach the young women so if it's a If it's a a wife of a pastor, what is her calling? Her calling is the same as every other calling of a godly Christian woman in the local church. If she's an aged woman, well then here's what she needs to be doing. If she's a younger woman, the Bible talks about what the aged women are to teach the young women. The young women are to be taught these things. They're taught to be sober. They're taught to love their husbands. To love their children. To be discreet, chaste or pure, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So what should the expectations be on the pastor's wife? I believe the expectations should be Bible expectations. If she's an older woman, an aged woman, then she needs to be teachers of these things. There needs to be evidence in her life, a pattern of these things. Just as there should be evidence and patterns in every aged woman in this room here tonight. If she's a young woman, then what are the expectations? She is to be learning from the aged women and she is to have her life in order. She is to be sober. She is to love her husband, to love her children, to be discreet and to be chaste. You know, many churches have come to see the minister's wife, in some respects, as some extension of him in gifts and in calling. In other words, well, that's the, well, that's the pastor's wife. Therefore, therefore, every lady's ministry needs to be headed up by her. Well, that's the pastor's wife. Therefore, any time that someone is going to stand and they're going to teach ladies, it better be her. And I just have to tell you, that's not Bible. That's not biblical. The pastor's wife does not have to teach every time a woman is teaching other women in the local church. Uh, That that could be an unfair burden placed upon the pastor's wife. Now, she can lead ladies' ministries, and she can teach the Bible, uh, but she doesn't have to be responsible to do these things. Some assume... That because the pastor oftentimes is comfortable leading and speaking that the wife has the same gifts as if, as if it's sort of contagious, you know, she spent enough time around him and all of a sudden that, that gene just kind of rubbed off on her. I just have to tell you, that's not the case. Periodically, my wife is asked to speak somewhere and sometimes they, they know her. Sometimes they don't, but they just assume the pastor's wife of Cleveland Baptist church and she hates those phone calls hates them. I try to encourage her. I believe she's a tremendous, uh, tremendously gifted speaker. I believe she has a story to tell. I know she loves the Lord and I know she knows God's word, but I mean, she dreads those phone calls. I'm always encouraging her. You can do it. You can do it. And she said, I can't do it. Well, the truth of the matter is that's between her and the Lord, but she doesn't have to do those things. I have to tell you, I have to do this. I have to do it. And I just want you to know, I I feel like I don't have to do it. I get to do it. I love to do this. But not everybody is like this. In this church, some of you are sitting here and you say, if I had to get up there and if I had to stand in that place and I had to preach a message or teach a lesson, or if I even had to just stand up in front of everybody and give my name, I would die. And that's you. And that may be the pastor's wife too. She may feel similarly. Therefore, listen, it would not be right for us to place an unfair burden upon her. The burden, listen, what is her expectation? What is her responsibility? Her responsibility is to be what the word of God says every godly Christian woman should be. That's that's what it is. Now, can I just remind you that we see not only the minister's wife, but we see the minister's children here in this second verse of Philemon 1. It would seem as if Archippus is following in his dad's footsteps, as he's referred to here as our fellow soldier. And you'll find in a similar cross-reference, Colossians 4.17, Paul writes these words. He says, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. So the apostle Paul writes to Archippus, and it seems as if Archippus is some leader in the church there in Colossae likely the same church that is in the house of philemon his father now here's what's interesting i think to myself you know as a young man who grew up in a pastor's home uh, i grew up that that way and and of course i had i had two brothers i was the middle child and of the three of us that grew up in my dad's home my dad of course who for many years was the assistant pastor here before pastoring here for almost 24 years and um, we we grew up in that home and two of us two of us went on to full-time ministry and one of us did not my oldest brother is a businessman he got an accounting degree and now he works over in the far east side of cleveland and he's doing very very well lord's blessed him blessed his family and i am fairly certain that he's doing exactly what it is that god created him to do myself and my younger brother andy many of you know him He's an assistant pastor at a church in Indianapolis, Indiana. Both of us, after high school, we went off to Bible college and we prepared our lives to serve the Lord in full-time gospel ministry. But I want you to consider what Paul wrote in Colossians 4.17. He said to Archippus, he said said that he is to take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord. Now there are people, there are people that just automatically assume that the pastor's kids are going to follow in the pastor's footsteps. Can I tell you that that's a dangerous assumption to make. And that's just as unfair of an expectation as making the pastor's wife be something and do something that she is not called to do and perhaps maybe is not even equipped to do. Notice that Paul says to Archippus, he says, you have not received this ministry because of your father. Philemon was likely the pastor, the leader of that church in his house. He's the fellow laborer. He's a pastor there in Colossae, and his son likely followed in his footsteps. But understand this, listen, Philemon did not call Archippus to ministry. Paul writes, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that the Lord gave that ministry to Archippus. And can I just tell you that uh, I, I didn't get called to pastor the Cleveland Baptist Church because Kevin Folger is my father. Now that's, not why, that's not why I went into ministry I well remember the days in which the Lord was stirring in my heart. It was God that was doing it. From the time that I was a little boy, there were some that placed some expectations on me. You've heard the story that I've told about an old man in our church years and years ago, a man by the name of Frank Lawson. Frank Lawson used to watch my brothers and I when we were little guys. We'd we'd watch us in his apartment when my parents maybe were out making visits or doing different things. And uh, Frank Lawson would give me a little New Testament. And he'd tell me to stand behind his coffee table and he'd tell me to preach. I was four years old. No joke. I'd stand behind that coffee table and I'd open it up and I'd probably hit the thing and I probably screamed and hollered like I had maybe watched other people do, but I probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm given to understand that when uh, my dad would pick me up from Frank Lawson's house, he would. Frank would point at me and he'd tell my dad, he that boy right there is going to be a preacher someday. <laughs> I don't know how long ago Mr. Lawson passed away, but it was a long time ago. I was still a kid. And I don't know where he got that premonition or where he got that idea, but I want you to know something. Frank Lawson didn't call me to ministry. I'm not here today because of Frank Lawson. I'm not here today because of Kevin Folger. I'm not here today because of Bob Folger, Roy Thompson, or any other person. I do what I do today because God called me to this. I, um, I just want you to know that there is some there is some pressure placed upon children of of pastors of spiritual leaders, and um, and 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 that's a, that's something that we have to deal with. I just I just want to say publicly, as I was thinking as preparing for this message, that growing up in this church, the son of a pastor, one of the pastors, the son of the pastor, at a certain point in time in my life, uh, really this church was such a was such a blessing to us, in that in, in that there were no expectations placed upon us. You understood that we're kids. And that we were going to make mistakes and we were going to do stupid things from time to time. And that you just treated us just like you treated everyone else. And I just want to say publicly that that's a blessing. And I feel like in many respects you're treating my children that way. And by the way, that's biblical. I think that's the way they ought to be treated. Because again, the only expectation placed upon the pastor's children is that they be well behaved. And that doesn't mean that they be perfect. It just means that they be in order. That when the pastor, when dad or when mom says, hey, let's go, it's time to get our act together, that that happens. And so we see the minister's children. I want you to notice finally and lastly tonight, I want you to consider Philemon's friends. We've talked about his faithfulness. We've talked about his family. And let's consider his friends in verses 3 to 7. There's two things that I want to point out and we'll be done tonight. Number one, we discover that his friends pray for him. Would you look in verse number three? Paul is writing, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse four, I thank my God making mention of the always in my prayers. Do you have a friend who prays for you? What a valuable thing, isn't it? To have a friend who brings your name before God's throne, who prays for you. Notice what Paul prayed for Philemon. He prayed, he prayed in verse number six, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. So Paul's prayer for Philemon was very specific. He was praying that the communication of Philemon's faith would be effectual, that it would be effective. I have a a story to tell. Every one of us have a story to tell. And the effectiveness of me telling my story could be based on several things. One of those things could be your prayers for me. Now think about this. Every Sunday morning, I stand in this pulpit and I tell a story. Not a false story, a true story. I tell people about how Jesus died for them and how he was buried and how he rose again. And if they'll believe, if they'll place all of their faith and all of their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he can save them. Do you understand, do you acknowledge, do you recognize that my effectiveness in telling that story might might be tied to your prayers for me? That's what Paul writes here. So can I challenge you? Can I encourage you on Saturday night? Before you go to bed, to pray for your pastor. Lord, the pastor's going to tell the story tomorrow. He's going to tell the story about what Jesus did for lost sinners. And Lord, would you make that story that he tells effectual? Or would you, would you make that story powerful in the hearts and lives of those who will hear it? Likely, Lord, likely there will be people in our church tomorrow morning that are lost, that need to hear the gospel. Lord, would you, would you, would you give him great power as he tells that story? Oh man, if I had a hundred of you praying that prayer for me, what a blessing that would be. What a blessing that would be. Notice, notice the story is effectual, not just, uh, not just because of prayers, but notice, he says that the communication of that faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. The second way that the story we tell can be effective is, is, is as, we, as we become the men and the women that God created us to be. Remember, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. In other words, the story you tell about the Lord Jesus Christ becomes that much more effective when they see Christ at work in your life. Maybe the first day that you went to work, you were still wrestling with a temper. Or perhaps maybe you were still wrestling with, you know, a lack of boldness in sharing your faith. But over time, as you've drawn close to the Lord, God has transformed you in that way. And now when those coworkers who are lost, when they see you and they hear you tell the story about Christ, they'll know that he's real because they can see him at work in your life. So that's what we're praying for. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me that as I tell the story, as I communicate my faith, I'll be effectual in doing so? And, and, and that one of the ways I can be effectual is as God grows me and develops me into who he would have me to be. Just as there are unfair expectations placed upon pastors' wives and pastors' children, sometimes there's unfair expectations placed upon pastors. Some of, some of you think that I'm like this right now in the pulpit, that I'm like this all the time. I'm not like this all the time. Uh, not at all. Sometimes people think that. Well, he's always like that. No, he's not. Sometimes I'm grouchy. Sometimes, not very often, but sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm crabby. Sometimes I'm irritable. Sometimes I'm short-tempered with my wife or with my children or maybe even with others. Maybe as I'm driving down the road and somebody does something I don't like, I'm tempted to blow that horn. We were just somewhere recently. It was on Tiedemann Road and the light turned green and the person didn't move and my hand was there. And my wife goes, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. I said, why? And she goes, that might be somebody going to our church. And I said, you're probably right. I won't do it. The truth of the matter is, I need not to do it whether it's somebody going to our church or not. <laughs> but there are, there are thoughts. There are thoughts that, you know, well, the pastor's always communicating his faith effectively. He's always acknowledging every good thing. No, not necessarily. You need to pray. You need to pray. So they pray for him. That's important. And then finally, lastly, they're, not only do they pray for him, but they are refreshed by him. Would you look in verse 5? He says, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Look in verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. I don't know about you, but I want to be the type of person, I want to be the type of person, when I come around, that I refresh those that I'm, I'm in contact with. And you ought to, you ought to want that too. That you, that you literally are used by God to refresh the bowels that means just the spirit the 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 inner man of the individuals that you're that you're communicating with you and I both know that there's plenty of people in this world that when they come around they don't refresh they depress right we know that and that that may be true but it ought not to be true about us uh, in this, in this church, or those who know Christ Jesus as their Savior, when you, when you come around other people, you ought to be the type of person where you're refreshing them. It's just so good to be in their presence. They're just such an encouragement. They're such a blessing. They're such a help. And may God help each of us to be that. That's what Philemon's friends found in him. And Paul wrote it down for us. And that's what, by the way, that's what our friends need to find in us. They need to find someone who refreshes them. Someone who encourages them. Someone who lifts them up. Who instills them with energy and with joy and with delight. Now our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment. We're, we're going to complete our time together here in just a moment. But would you take a, a second and would you just think about what you've heard tonight? And how can you make personal application in your own life? I don't know how God has spoken to your heart. Maybe, maybe God has ministered to some folks tonight and say, You know, I'm going I'm to take away from this just the need uh, that is in my life to pray for my pastor and for his family and that would be a help to us we'd be encouraged by that perhaps some of you some of you are sitting here saying you know i want to i want to hear i want to pray more specifically for uh, my pastor and for my friends my christian friends that the communication of their faith would be effectual I'll well, pray for that i don't know that i've ever prayed for that before but i'm going to some of you, some of you might say, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to from here on out. I want to be someone who refreshes, not someone who depresses. Maybe you can see evidence of your life from time to time of sort of a negative spirit so that when you come around other people, there's not a spirit of joy, but there's a spirit of sort of sorrow. There's a spirit of anxiety that accompanies you. So with God's help, I'm going to do better. I want to refresh the inner men, the inner women of those that I come in contact with. I want to be a blessing. I want to be a help.